Thank you, Emily. Mark chapter 4. The more I read Mark, the more I feel like I'm on TikTok. It goes quick. Hey, I was going to say I got to slow down. Y'all don't want me to slow down. (laughs) I hear what you be saying. I might go slow this evening, though, but we're in chapter 4. And again, he, Jesus Christ, began to teach by the sea, and a great multitude was gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole multitude. Mark loves that word multitude. He uses it many of times in his gospel. The whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. Then he taught them many things by parables and said to them in his teaching. Matthew and, Matthew and Luke speaks of parables often. Parabole, a placing of one thing by the side of another. It's a juxtaposition, placing close Together, side by side, especially for comparison. Jesus does that in all of his teachings just about. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. A comparison of one thing with another. A simultude, an example which a doctrine or precept is illustrated. And the idea behind the word parable is to throw alongside, to cast alongside a story, alongside the truth. And it's intended to teach. And we may ask ourselves, why would Jesus teach in such a way? It can be complicated. Why, can't, why won't he just come out and present the truth of his gospel? He honors those. He honors everyone with their own agenda. If you want to know the truth of the gospel... Well, Jesus will present it in a way that reveals that to you. But if you really don't want to know the truth, he's not going to do that. Uh, Jesus, when he speaks, is so powerful that he would break down man's will. And man has to make a choice whether he wants to follow the Lord or not. Jesus, he didn't start out speaking in parables to the Jews. It was only when they said, hey, you're, 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 you're preaching by Beelzebub. You're, you're doing all these things. You're not the Messiah. He turned to those guys in parables. For those who would hungry or hunger for the word, hunger for the truth, they would, also, they would always come back and ask him, what does this mean? But for those who didn't want to hear it, They didn't have to worry about it. They didn't have time to ponder what he was saying because it didn't mean much to them. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Matthew, in this same spot in chapter 13, he says this, Therefore, speak I to them in parables. Because they seeing, they think they see what he's really saying, see not. And hearing, they hear not. It's Once again, it's not with the intellect, but it's with spiritual discernment of the heart that gets you to the meat of what Jesus is saying. Neither do they understand, and in them is fulfilled 
the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, by hearing you shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing you shall see and shall not perceive. For this people's, and this is the problem, this is why he, he presents parables to them, for this people's heart is wax gross, gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes, they, notice what it says, they have closed. They're hearing the truth, and they close their ears, and they close their eyes to it, and should be converted if they would let the light of Jesus Christ come into their hearts, and I should heal them. He says in verse 3, listen, behold, the sore went out to sow. All of those years growing up in, in, a, in the church as a little boy, hearing the word on Sunday, hearing the word on Wednesday, hearing the word seven days a week when, when revival would come in the summer, hearing those words, it never benefited me. Now, you can say it was God was planting seeds, and I'm glad of that. But if I was hearing to really know the gospel, I would have been saved a long time ago. That's my point. That's the point I'm making. He says, and it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. The wayside is the path that the farmer would really walk on. And I believe as he was grabbing the, the seeds, some would trickle on that wayside. And immediately, it's or, uh, uh, on the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Where the seed could not fall into the ground, the birds would come, scoop the seed up, and take it away. Some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth. You might remember me telling you this before. I believe when I gave my life to the Lord at 13 years of age, or I thought I did, the seed of God's word fell on stony ground. I was excited about it. And as time went on and went on, it began to be a burden, the spiritual walk and all those things. Now I realize I had believed with my head instead of my heart. I, I can remember when I said, oh, I can't do this. I'm just going to give up. I, I, I can't do it. But the birds came and they plucked that seed out of my heart. And it says, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. I was excited. My parents was excited. But when the sun, the heat of the day, the trials, and, and the, uh, all the things that happens in everyday life begin to bear on me, Jesus says, was up, was up, it was scorched. And because it had no root, it withered away. I wonder how many, especially young kids, that happens to. Oh, you can, you can say, well, they were saved and they, they just veered off with the Lord, but that's not what the Scripture says, and I have to ride with Scripture. The seed, nothing wrong with the seed. It fell on good ground. But when the sun came up, the trials and the heat of the day, and it says, and because it had no root, it withered away. These first, the first three soils, these are in the unbelieving camp. That's what it boils down to. He says, and some seed fell among thorns. Thorns describes the, the, the soil, 
probably with a lot of moisture so the seed would grow, but also the weeds would grow also because it's fertile. And the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. I think many soil, many seed fall on this group right here where the word is choked by the busyness of life and, 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 and uh, just doing other things instead of following the Lord and in his word and in his prayer. And you begin to, the, the busyness of this world begins to choke the word out. So that can happen. These are three areas where the seed fell And once again, it represents the unsaved. Verse 8 says, but other seed fell on good ground. And it describes the soil that's fertile ground. There's no weed there. The weed will grow up, but it's our job to go pull those weeds. And you pull those weeds on Wednesday and on Sunday and through the week as you read his word and, and, and let the word just take over you and and I'm doing this wrong. I'm doing that wrong. I need to straighten this out. I need to straighten that out. That's what it does. But this seed that fell on good ground, it has to have a hungry heart, a searching heart, a searching for spiritual things. It says, and yielded a crop that sprang up and up increased and produced some 30 folds, some 60 and some 100. Only this, this fourth soil falls on good ground. That's a fourth of it, which represents the ones who are saved, the ones who receive the word once again. And there are different degrees of fruit bearing. That's why Jesus says there's 30, some 60, some 100. I believe we can all have a hundredfold if we put in the work. There's no work in salvation. Jesus draws. He saves us. But there is work in producing fruit. We have to abide in the word, Jesus says. We have to remain in the word. We have to be in the word and be prayerful people. And that's how you produce much fruit. Remember when the Lord was in the upper room with his disciples getting ready to go to Gethsemane? Jesus says, I am the true vine. Then he says, if you follow me and you stick close to me, you'll bear much fruit. Uh, and then he said, you, you, and some will bear even more fruit. And I believe the closer your relationship is to Jesus Christ, the more fruit you will bear. So there's degrees of fruit bearing. Verse 9, and he said to them, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then he tells us, it's like your car, and you never want to see that check engine light come on. If you're like me, you ignore it for as long as you can. I remember one time I, I had a Viat. I was probably about 18, 19 years. Boy, I love that Viat. That's why the Lord took it from me. But the check engine light would always come on, and I didn't have the money to do anything about it. Freshman year in college. So guess what I did? First, I got a piece of cardboard and placed it in the dashboard over the check engine light. This is a true story. But, of course, it kept falling down as I'm shifting gears. I said, man. Then I got a piece of black tape (laughs) and put it over it. And when I finally did something about it, had the money to do something about it, it was too late. Car blowed the engine and everything else. We don't want to do that. When we're getting these warning signs from the Holy Spirit, check your engine. Something's going on. 
we need to alertly go and do those things because he's warning us because he loves us. He's not warning us to chastise us. He warns us because he loves us. Jesus says, but when he was alone, those around him with the 12, with the 12, so it was many more along with the 12 apostles, asked him about the parable. Those who didn't understand, they didn't want to understand. They turned away. And he said to them, to you, it has been given to know, it's a gift, the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, here's a good question for you. Who put them outside? Did they put themselves outside because they didn't want to hear? I think a little of that too. Those who are outside, all things come in parables. So that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest, and that's why that word lest is there, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? These verses, they have a certain degree of ambiguity to them. They're kind of sketchy. They're kind of foggy, and you can't understand them unless you go to the Lord, showing that you want to know the truth, and he reveals it to you. Malachi said this, yet Jacob have I loved, but Esau I have hated. Just like Israel, we should find assurance in God electing us. God wants us to understand that he chose us before the foundation of the world, the scripture says, Revelation tells us. He chose us knowing we were going to be born, knowing he was going to save us. And that should give us great solace in knowing that God loves us that much that he chose us. And it's sort of like, Esau descendants, the Edomites, the Edomites sinned, but so did Israel. They both sinned, but God made a way for the Israelites to come back and to into this personal relationship when he did not do that for Esau. And you know, they were both twins. Uh, Esau was born first, even though they were twins. So he got all of the earthly blessings but God really doesn't care about that. It's the spiritual blessings that count. And that's what Jacob did. I love this verse, uh, Romans 5, 8. It says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The choice of Jacob over Esau is a strong and classic example of God's election once again. Esau should have got all of the spiritual blessings. I think it was Hebrews that says, Esau was a profane, I forget the, the next word, man. Outside the threshold. And what that tells me, Esau made his life comfortable, not inside the house of God. Esau, I said it before, Esau didn't hate Jehovah. He just made him commonplace. I can take him or leave him. I can read the word later on and watch this game or do this or do that. And you have to be careful because God will become common to you. That was Esau's downfall. 
He became common, and when Jehovah became common to him, he, pro- he continued, he began to be profane. Those are slippery slopes. That's what the New Testament tells us about him. So we should always give the Lord reverence. He saved us, you guys. He's birthed us into a living hope, into his family, and we should always remember that. He says, Acts 16, 14 says this. I love this verse. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us, Paul writing. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken to Paul. Now, he says she loved God before she was born again. That's amazing. And then what's even more amazing about that, who opened her heart? God opened her heart. The Lord opened her heart. That's the way anybody who's ever been saved will be saved. God is the beginning and the end of salvation. He has to open a heart. If he doesn't do that, we're worse off than a goat in a hailstorm. It takes the Lord. That's why for your unsaved family members, for your unsaved friends, the greatest thing you could ever do is pray for them. That God would open their hearts. Uh, It was Paul who says, our gospel is hid. It is hid because the God of this world has blinded their minds that they can't see. Because if you could ever see God, what he has in store for the ones he loves, Everybody would go towards him. So Satan is doing his job keeping us blind with the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of this life and the here and now. And some people never get their eyes off of this world to think about the next world. So pray for your unsaved friends and loved ones. Verse 13, and he said to them, they have come to him. Do you not understand this parable? I would have probably been one that said, hey, I'm here. You know I don't understand that. He'd probably tell me to leave. How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness. And they have no root in themselves. How, do, how, do you, how does a plant produce roots? I'm not a botanist. I'm, I only have a third grade education. Tell me, how, do, how does roots grow? What, what do they need to grow? What does plant needs to grow? Water, sunlight, all those good things. We need the word. That's why Ephesians says that we may be washed by the water of the word. We are born again. How do I grow? By being washed by the water of the word. You can't get around it. We might try to get around it. We may think we're getting around it. But it's the word that gives growth to us in prayer. He says, and they have no root in themselves. And so they endure Only for a time. That's what happened to me. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. 
Time the wind blows. Like a, a, a broken reed, they stumble. Now, these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world. The cares is maremna, and it, and it means to draw in different directions. You're pulled to the left. You're pulled to the right. You're, everybody is pulling. Now, you should do this. You should do that. I want to do this. I've seen this commercial on TV. I want that. I need that. I want this. And the world is pulling you. That's what he means by that. And the world does its job along with Satan in the flesh every day. And it causes care, agitation in our hearts for wanting things. When Jesus has said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So that's why we need the word. Then he says, the deceitfulness of riches hmm, and the desires for other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. That tells me it was fruitful for all those once saved, always saved. That tells me that they were once fruitful, but they became unfruitful. And if you're not fruitful, you're not his. That's what this parable is saying. Matthew says this in chapter 6, verse 19, 19 through 21. Jesus speaking, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, where's your treasure this evening? There your heart will be also. He says the deceitfulness of, rich, of riches, apata, it means the lust excited by deceit, by the de- deceitful influences. Ephesians 4.22 says this, Paul speaking, that you put off concerning the former conversation of the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. We have to put the old man down day after day after day. Verse 20, but these are the ones sown on good ground. Those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit. Some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. Also, he said to them, is the lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed? Is it not to be set on a lampstand? For there is nothing hidden which will not be revealed, nor has anything been kept secret, but that it should come to light. Light creates responsibility. Once you know the truth, once you receive the truth, we're held to a greater responsibility. You can say, I didn't know, I didn't know, I didn't know, but once the light of the gospel is revealed to us. There's no more hiding behind that. We get the impression that a man, we say he's a sinner because of our weakness, because of our ignorance. That's what most people think. But Paul says very candidly in Romans chapter 1 that men, when they knew God, glorified him not as God. So it's more than that. Man is a willful sinner. That's the kind of sinner all of us were. 
And the light that comes in, it, recreate, it creates responsibility when the gospel is presented to us. When God lets the penetrating power of the gospel hit our heart, then we have a choice to make. Verse 23, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. This is an action right here, because if we hear, truly hear the gospel, then we'll start walking as the gospel presents itself to us. We cannot stand static if we are who we say we are. Then he said to them, take heed what you hear. With the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. The measure is how you hear, how much effort or attention you put into your hearing. It will be measured to you. If you hear and you pick it up and you start walking in what you know, God will give you more. He will reveal himself more and more to you. I heard John Corson say this. God is a great boss. This is what he said. He laughs. He said, God is a great boss because he never puts more in your inbox. He never overwhelms you. If he tells you to do something, he'll let it sit there for two or three months. He's not like a, a, the, a earthly boss who would put more in that inbox. No, you think he's mad. He's just, he, he just, no, I love you. There must be a problem with your hearing because I've told you this four months ago and it, you still haven't taken it up to do anything. That's what he's saying here. Once we hear and we show we have really heard by walking out what he's saying, then he'll give you something else. But not until. While we're thinking, I'm being disobedient. God is upset with me. God is mad with me. No, that's earthly men. That's not God. God is waiting till you do what he has first asked you to do. John 14, 21, Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. I don't want to hear all this, you love me, you love me, you love me. That's what he told Malachi. You're bringing me these, these lame uh, uh, animals, broken leg, spots on them, and you're boasting in that? Try giving that to your president see will he take them. That's what Jesus is saying. They're the same today, yesterday, forever. He says, who has my commandments and keep them? It is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest, there it is, I just said it two paragraphs ago, and manifest myself to him. The more I obey God, the more he gives me, and that brings closeness to the relationship. And if you don't feel a closeness in your walk with the Lord, you need to check the inbox. And remember what he's asked us and told us to do. And when you do that, just like 1 John says, you can walk back in fellowship with him. For whoever has to him, more will be given. But whoever does not have, even what he has, check engine light, will be taken away from him. That's scary. What he if you're doing what he says, he will give you more. When you just flat stop, I'm not going to do it. What you had will be taken away. 
And only Mark records verse 26 and 28. This, he says, and he said, the kingdom of God. And I don't know if you remember, there's a difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is larger, is a larger term, including the whole universe. The kingdom of heaven is God's rule over the earth, which is, of course, the kingdom of God. It's like if I'm in the state of Georgia, I'm still in the United States. That makes it the kingdom of God. It's still his kingdom. He says, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day, and the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how, for the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, after that the full grain in the head. And this parable, what it does is illustrates the power, once again, we're studying Hebrews, the power of the word of God. Isaiah 55, 11 puts it this way. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. I have a confidence when I'm sharing the word. It's going to have an effect, once again, on those whose heart is pliable. If your heart is pliable, I've been saying this right here since I was teaching elementary kids. If I did nothing but come up here and open the Bible, if I opened the King James thick Bible and began in Genesis and read all the way to Revelation, you should have your fill. That's the word of God. Everything else is my opinions. The word will do its job. It may have small roots from the, at the beginning, but when God gets through developing, if we stay there, if we're, we let him uh, prune us, let him dung us, let him do all those things that a caring vine dresser does, he will shake his hands and say, I have did a good job because we will produce fruit if we sit there and have a heart to receive his word. Nothing wrong with the word. Then he said, to what shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what parable sh shall we picture it? It is like a mustard seed, which when it is sown on the ground, is smaller than all the seeds on the earth. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes a greater, greater than all herbs and shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. And with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear. But without a parable, he did not speak to them. And when they were alone, he explained all these things to his disciples. Now, we know mustard, you can have mustard greens, I guess. Mustard is a condiment, but mustard greens, they, they're plants. But the issue is when he says the birds of the air, and I've told you guys this before, Principle, it's called the principle of first mention. Anytime the birds came on the scene when Abraham was trying, had split the calf, split the, the, the sheep or the goat in two and waiting on God, 
and he began to get sleepy. And the, here comes the birds of the air trying to take away the promises of God. The birds represent Satan and his henchmen. And that's what he says here. And he's saying the church is founded, Timothy tells us, on the pillar, is the pillar and ground of the truth. Every church should be founded on that, and that should be our mainstay, teaching the word and prayer, teaching the word and prayer. Everything else is just icing on the cake. That's what he's telling them. Not by the ingenuity, the makeup of man. Let's try this, and it's all right to try things, but as long as the foundation is the word of God and prayer. God doesn't need my ingenuity, my strength, which is only a little anyway. God wants me on my knees praying for the church, praying, God, would you come and wake us up? Would you stir the church up that we would be on fire for you? That will never happen except by prayer. We can try all the ministries, do all the things, try this and that, the ingenuity of man. But unless we're on our knees praying, we'll never see it blessed. And that's what he's saying here. That's what it takes. Verse 35, on the same day when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. Now, when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he, as he was, and the other little boats were also with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern. I can understand why he was asleep, preaching to the multitude, all those things. His ministry was 24-7. That tells me a little bit about the disciples. Why weren't, why weren't some of those guys asleep? Because they weren't into it like the Messiah was. They weren't working hard as the Messiah was. That's why they weren't asleep. On a pillow, and they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? That might be my most favorite line in the Bible. And the reason it's my most favorite, because I say it probably more than any other line in the Bible. I tell them myself, hey, don't you care? Don't you see what's going on in my life, Lord? Don't you care? That I'm perishing. Then he arose, that's the Jesus I know, and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm, but he said to them, Why are you so fearful? Delios is the word for fearful. It means, Why are you in dread? Why are you timid at these circumstances? Why are you faithless? And then he asked them another question. How is it that you have no faith? You've just heard my message. You've seen my miracles. How is it that you have no faith? Only because it hadn't penetrated to their hearts yet. And they feared exceedingly. And the reason they are fearful now, they went to, from one fear of the oceans and the waves, the sea and the waves and all those things, to another fear. Can you imagine 
just a lake that's like glass, not one wave, not anything, just calm. It was a supernatural calm. I kind of think that's the way it is around that, that sea of glass in heaven. Just a, it's calm, all is calm there. And that's what they got fearful of. How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly. It's funny. They feared the waves, but they feared the calmness even more. That's what it says. And said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? If you read through the Gospels, they're fearful and they're in awe, but they don't get saved right here. It's hard. It can happen. But it's hard to get saved with a lot of emotion, by emotional things. I told you, I, I was at the altar at one church. I knew it had to be 45 minutes to an hour. They were shouting. They were screaming. They were doing everything else. And I was praying for salvation. And it never came. When I was by myself, just me and the Lord, he saved me. That's why I, have, I, I, I give a jaundiced eye when I turn on the TV sometimes and, and the pastor's running the aisle and they're jumping all around and all those things. And they have 75 to 100 people come down. And I said, well, I wonder how many are truly saved. Because it's emotion. And God... Emotion wears off. God, that's why he doesn't save them right here. Go back and read your gospel. None of them get saved by this because they're going to ask him the same thing. Who are you? And he's going to say, I told you who I was. But they're, all, they're by themselves, and, they, and that's when they get it. No hype is going on. Sometimes I say, I think... I need a good hype woman. Emily is my hype woman. She gets everything started up here. She's my hype woman. But we don't need hype for salvation. We need a heart that's hungry for the Lord, and God knows when that time comes. And then all you have to ask, do you want to be saved? And then there's no hype going on. There's no emotion going on. It's when the rubber meets the road. I either will or I either won't. Just the pure, unadulterated word of God. That's all you need, and that's what saves. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for those that come out to hear your word. I thank you for those that's online watching. I pray that your word will penetrate all the flesh, as Hebrews says, between bone and marrow, between soul and spirit, and fall right into the heart where it will produce much fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. 
that we will bring you glory and honor, Lord. We want to extol your word. We want to magnify your word. We want to live your word, Father. Lord, I pray for Calvary Restore. I pray that you will do a great work here. Lord, I pray that your will will be done here, whatever that will is. Not my will once again, but your will. You are the head. And we take our marching orders from you. And I'm confident in that. As long as we're, we have our eyes fixed on you, you're going to bless us, Lord. So I pray for those that are online watching. I pray for those that came out tonight that you would reward their effort of setting everything aside. Much things, many things we could be doing. But they've come to hear your word, Lord. May you bless them for it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.